right. Thank you, everybody. Good morning. I know it feels like 9.30. It's 10.30, yeah. That a trick. I, I don't know how this world works. I don't understand it. But anyway, we are here. Hopefully the coffee is working for you. Hopefully it begins working for me. It's nothing, nothing like preaching at like the 7.30 a.m. service. I mean, that's just, that really motivated me for this one today. No, but uh, I really want you to take notice of those two events and opportunities coming up, Soul Restore and the Grief Support Group. There's so many people, as Corey said in the announcement, that are facing burnout, exhaustion, experiencing tragedy in their lives. I mean, this is a world that is filled with tragedy around us. You think of the two young men, the boys, uh, that tragically died here in Huntington in a car accident this week. Many of you heard that story. It reminds us of what's going on on the other side of the world, the war in Ukraine, the the 50-plus children, the 1,500, they believe, civilians that have perished in that conflict, the fact that there's hundreds, there's thousands of children every year that are dying of preventable diseases, and the world just doesn't set aside those resources. I mean, this is a world that when we look at the news, we look at the feed, we're faced with tragedy, and some of it's very personal to us. So where in the world can we find healing? Where is there healing of substance? Where is there encouragement and hope that is, again, of substance? It's got to be found in the church. It's got to be found among God's people and in God himself. So we want to provide the resources for you. Again, Soul Restore is going to be a one-night experience. It's going to be an awesome opportunity for not just you to be encouraged in whatever you're facing, but both Soul Restore and the Grief Support Group are great opportunities to invite others in. Okay, maybe they don't even have the same basis of faith that we do, but truly, they're not going to find the healing, they're not going to find the vision, the hope that they require in their lives outside of God. We all believe that. So truly, utilize these as opportunities, not just for you to be ministered to, which we want to see first, but obviously for others outside our community to be ministered to as well. So both of those events are obviously open to the public. Yourself, invite restored and fed is by meditating and reflecting on the Word of God. And we're going to be doing that this morning right now. We open up to Matthew chapter 21. We're continuing this series, Kingdom at Hand. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you so that you can open up to a physical copy of what we're going to be reading together. This message this week is very much connected to last week's message. It's really a two-part scene that's going on here that we split up into two messages where Jesus had this confrontation with the religious in the temple grounds. And at first, they very much had Jesus at the ropes when they were questioning his authority. But if you were with us last week, we listened to it, you saw that he very quickly turned the tables. And now he's going to go on the offense. He's going to tell two, you know, strikingly simple parables that are going to reveal how God is removing those religious leaders from this special exalted place that they had in God's kingdom. He's going to be removing them from that special place, and he's going to be replacing them with others. And there's a specific purpose behind it together. Jesus and these religious leaders, that first parable, he's asking this question, what think in verse 28 to those leaders in the temple grounds. Let's, let's start together. Verses on the screens. 
What do you think, Jesus asks them? There's a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, the son answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. That son answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, the religious leaders answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this change in them, you did not repent and believe him. Verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine in it, and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers. his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? On this, And it is marvelous in our hearts. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and give it to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls in this anyone on when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard them, they looked for to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So we know this funny teaching this morning, right? I mean, this is the nature of biblical preaching when we're rooted in the Word of God. There's a tone and a tenor to the passage that if I'm accurately conveying what's in the message, it's going to dictate my tone and tenor for the morning. So there's sometimes we get together and there's an encouraging message. Other mornings we get together and there's a corrective message. There's a fighting message. There's a softer message. And that's all going to be dictated by the, the Word of God. And, and what we realize in our growth and immaturity is we need all of those messages to be well-rounded disciples. But there's no way around it. This is a very challenging set of parables. Two parables here, right? Both about vineyards. Both an indictment against the leaders that are standing in front of Jesus. In the first parable, right, I told you this is a very simple scenario that's out here. You've got two sons who are sitting with their the table. He's the And we got the first son, who initially is a little bit mouthy with his father, right? <laughs> he gets told to go work, and he says, no, I don't want to do that. But it says that he had a change of heart. He had a change of mind later on, and he went and actually did the work. And then you have this second son, right? And initially, he has the right response. He's got the response that's very respectful as well. He says, I will, sir, 
right? Right? There's this deference for the father there, but then he never actually gets to the work. He never actually follows through. This is like when my wife asked me to take out the trash eight times every day. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Never happens, all right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. So you play that out. Which of these two is the father pleased with? Which of the two did what the father asked? Jesus presents to his hostile audience. And the answer is obvious. It's the first, even accounting for his initial hesitation, because he did the work. Whereas Jesus sometimes leaves the context of the parables in the hands of his audience for them to sort of decipher, you know, who is who in the story. There's no cloaked meanings in this particular teaching. In verse 31, he openly uses this story as a bear trap, right, for his captive audience. When he says this, that the prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of them ahead of the religious elite. It's like some corporate vice president hearing that they've been passed up for the CEO because some summer intern was hired for the role. I mean, that's the sort of reversal we're talking about here. Think about the terms that Jesus uses, the sort of people that are ahead of him going into the kingdom of God. He doesn't just say, you know, hey, this is the underclass of society going ahead of you. This is, you know, the generalized sinners. He chooses his words carefully. He says it's the tax collectors. These are the name-betraying men, the enemies of the state that are going on ahead of you. These are the prostitutes. These are the vile, ungodly, worthless-in-your-eyes women, the prostitutes that are going on ahead of you into the kingdom. How can that be, right, that they're going on ahead? of verse 30, John the Baptist came preaching this message of true righteousness. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were changing their heart. They were changing their mind. They were applying themselves to that message. While these Pharisees and Sadducees and elites didn't believe him. And even when they saw change in others, they themselves would not be changed. So the is now unmistakable. Here are the people whose choices initially seem to deny God's directives. That is the prostitutes and tax collectors, just like that first son. I'm not going to go. They initially are denying the ways of God. But in the end, they had a change of heart. They had a change of mind. And they actually did the work of the kingdom. And then you have the second son. You have those who have all the right confessions. You know, they're devout. They're faith-filled. In word, right? I will, sir, I will go and do everything that you require. But there was no follow through. They never actually got to the work. Now, if there's one thing this parable makes clear, it's right here on the surface. God can't stand lip service. He cannot stand lip service. He doesn't have any respect for pleasantries going through the motion empty activity if there is no substance to back it up. It's not the first time God has called out his people for just providing lip service and that being an empty endeavor. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, he says to the Israelites, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. They speak great words, but their hearts, 
who they actually are is far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. When they worship me, they're just going through the motions. It's just a bunch of empty activity. It's just a bunch of people mimicking each other. This last week, I went to the consumer hub of empty activity and mimicry. We got a Costco membership. <laughs> That's right. I'm an executive in the Costco club, the executive membership. Costco is a frightening place. It's a scary place. The parking lot's scary. Navigating into the entrance is scary. Navigating around the inside is scary. There's a lot of rules. They're not posted anywhere, but you have to move with the flow constantly. If you move against the flow, it, it's like the hive mind, right? There is a beehive. If you go the wrong direction, you're going to get hit by a wheel. You're going to get hit by a, one of those massive, ridiculous carts that you got to push around. And there was actually a lady berating another lady. You're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction. Like, there's lanes. I, 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 but truly, if you're going toward the checkout, I mean, it's everyone all at once, right? The crowd pushes you. You come against that? So I finished in there, you know, after like an hour, hour and a half. Load up everything in the car. Of course, gas is now $6. So we go, okay, let's go save some money on gas. So we go around the building. And we sit 30 minutes to 25 cents a gallon on gas with all these other suckers. Because for 30 to 45 minutes, are we not burning gas? Like, effectively, what am I paying myself for that half hour to 45 minutes? But it's just all this activity. It's just all this mimicry, right, and motion. And, like, I was exhausted on the other side of it. I don't know if I'm going back. <laughs> I wonder how many people feel the same way when they walk into a church, that they have that same sort of experience. Look at all the activity. Look at all the motion. Look at all the mimicry. Walk in, sit down, stand up, sing, sit down. Guy stands up, guy talks, guy sits down. We stand up, we sing, we leave. And if that's all it is with a bunch of God talk over the top of it, it is not pleasing to our Father in heaven. What he's looking for, what he wants to enlist, is anyone, anyone who wants to put their heart and their mind into service in his kingdom. He's willing to work with anyone, anyone. The furthest people from him, the people that have had all the wrong confessions, the people that have outright even just denied him in the past, if they want to change their heart and invest their heart and invest their mind, he's looking for somebody who's actually putting some heart into it and wants to do the work. He says, open season, I'm hiring, I'm bringing you in. I think about the Ukrainian armed forces when they're coming against the Russians and the Russians are coming against them and they're saying, look, foreign fighters, fly in. We don't care where you're from. We don't care who you are. You want to fight with us? You can fight with us. It's open season. And 20,000 fighters or more have joined them. It's the same thing in the kingdom of God. God is saying tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, all these folks, look, you want to change your heart and mind? You want to be a part of this? Join in and join in with the work. 
But the ones who claim that they're already part of that kingdom and pay that lip service, they better make sure their hearts are in it or else they're going to get changed out. That's what the next parable says. In it, you've got again this owner of a vineyard who establishes the operation and he rents it to some tenants. And in the first century, the arrangement would be like this. The owner owns the land, brings in the tenants. It's going to take about four years for the first harvest. And at that first harvest, the owner is going to get their fair share. And then there's going to be a fair share that's actually given to the tenants as well. Okay, There's profit sharing that goes on. But fast forward in time, Jesus says harvest has arrived. And the owner of the vineyard sends his servants to go collect some of the fruit that should be there. And it says the tenants got possessive over the owner's share. Verse 35 tells us the owner's servants then were beat, killed, and stoned, which is an overt reference to the history of Israel, where God had sent messengers, servants, prophets to speak his truth to the people. But they were beaten, stoned, and killed. Uriah and Zechariah and Jeremiah and now even John the Baptist. They were killed for doing the work of God. So in response, the owner of the vineyard sent his son, expecting that at least he would be respected. But in what could be perceived as sort of an ill-conceived plan or maybe this rash decision, the tenants get well, that's the heir. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him outside the vineyard and killed him. And here again, you've got overt reference to the ministry of Jesus, the son of the vineyard owner, who's led outside Jerusalem and as before, Jesus asked the religious leaders to form a logical conclusion to the story. Hey, finish the story for me. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to those wicked tenants? What does he do next when he shows up? What does he do to the people who took his property and murdered his son? And the answer is as obvious to them as it is to us. He's going to take his property back and give it to others, and he's going to take those wretched people and bring them to a wretched end. Unintentionally, though it may have been, they have and is present with Psalm 11. The stone the builders rejected, the son of the owner of the vineyard that they killed, has become the cornerstone. The stone holds the whole wall together and holds it up. Okay, though these wretched people have killed this individual, he will be raised to life. And he's going to take possession of God's kingdom out of their hands and place new tenants in their place that are going to be built upon him as the cornerstone. And in the language of what Jesus is saying, are you saying, I'm going to give my kingdom to a new people. That word for people is a new nation. A new nation is going to receive this commission. Both Jews and Gentiles who have their heart in it and they're going to produce the fruit that's shared with the vineyard owner. In Matthew's gospel, this passage really forms to me a bookend with John's teaching at the outset. And it actually Baptist ministry and Jesus' fiction and resurrection. Same message at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. If we could, you know, rewind all the way back a year and a half when we started in Matthew's gospel, like a VHS tape to do that. If we could rewind 
to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is there, and man, he's in the wilderness, away from the temple complex and all the institution, and there's tax collectors and there's sinners and prostitutes who are doing the very thing that's talked about here. They're changing their hearts and lives, and they're being welcomed into the kingdom. And it says the Sadducees and Pharisees, these religious elites, show up to kind of scope out what John's doing, and when he sees them, he says this to them, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, you brood of vipers. Basically, what are you doing out here? Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Basically, you can hide behind your confessions just like that second son. Oh, we're chosen. Oh, we're special. We've got this status. Right? But don't think that you can hide behind that. You can make anything else the children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I say the same to you today. Don't think that God sent Jesus just so we could be the new chosen people with the new set of confessions that we hide behind with a new set of empty religious practices. We just took their place. All the emptiness that was them, well, now it's Christian emptiness. That's why God sent his son. Absolutely not. God didn't us from our sin. He didn't fill us with his Holy Spirit and spell out his will in clear terms through Jesus and call us son and daughter just so that we could sit around the Father's table and make small talk. He did all that to challenge us to do what they didn't do. He did all that to challenge us to do the work of the kingdom and to share the harvest. I have a few pastoral reflections for us in this sobering message. Again, in a different service is no service. Lip service is no service to God. Intention is not enough. Isn't that proven in the first parable by the second son? Now, I'm not asserting that we're saved by our works. We are saved by grace through our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross so that no one can boast in how self-righteous they are. Hey, we're saved by grace. Even the first son didn't get it all right. <laughs> he didn't say, go and do the work. But then he changed his mind, and he went and got on with the work. So you might say to me, wait, Andrew, are you trying to assert that we really, as Christians, are supposed to be doing the things we read about in the Bible? Yeah. You can put me in that category of people who believes that we are actually to be producing the fruit. I am in the category of people who think Matthew wasted breath, acting like he expects us to do these things, but not really expecting us to do these things. He expects us to do these things, to become these things. He expects us to be a people of limitless forgiveness. He expects us to be a people who are going to stop when we see someone who's for dead on the side of the road. He expects us to be a group of people who aren't going to keep splitting hairs over the specifics of our practice on every little bit of religion, but is instead growing in our compassion for those who are suffering. And he expects us, when we don't do any of that, 
to repent, to confess, to experience his transforming grace so that we can live into the righteousness that he's granted us through the cross. We find that we are more talk than walk today. Let's repent and confess and receive God's grace together. Lip service is no service. Intention is not enough. Secondly, I want us to remember, we work God's kingdom. He doesn't work our kingdom. In the second parable, the tenants got possessive over God's vineyard. Certainly that's the temptation general as human beings. You know, we come into this life and we start owning it as if we ourselves life and all the resources and opportunities we have, we begin to, you know, think that's just all ours for our agenda and our purposes. You know, some are happy to have God play a part in their life up to a certain extent. You know, a lot of people are spiritual up to a certain extent. You know, but the second God starts asking for a little bit of the harvest, you know, hey, this is how I think you should spend some more of your time. Hey, these are the constraints I believe you should have on your sexual behavior. Hey, this is what I think you should be doing with some of your finances. Immediately, people go, wait a minute, God. I had you come in here and set up the vineyard, but this is my property now, and they kill him. That's the basics of it. There's so many to entertain the idea to a certain extent the second demanded of them. Whose vineyard is this? Who's the tenant and who's the owner? Same as us who might look at the church as a place where all of our social and religious needs get fulfilled for us. The church, this community, this collective is supposed to be the group that is together serving the desires and fulfilling the desires of God's will in the world. Whose vineyard is it? Is God the tenant that we pay our leftovers? Or is he the one who owns the whole harvest in our lives? This third and final reflection that I have is one that comes not just from this passage, but last week's message, the conversation I had in community group, looking at the whole of Matthew's gospel. Let me make this statement. Hungry people must find a meal here. And I mean this in spiritual terms. Hungry people must find a meal here in our collective community. That's in our individual lives. It's ironic to me that if someone wanted to find God in the context of Jesus's ministry, the first century area here, find God life. If they wanted to find real and with heart, the last place that they should go was to a priest. The last place they should have gone was to these religious elite. The last place to go was the temple institution, right? The people that were spiritually hungry, these prostitutes and tax collectors, these sinners, the underclass of society, they could never be welcomed over there to find something real, to find something of God where they could change and be healed. They had to go out into the middle of the wilderness, Way out in the boonies to find John the Baptist, someone who would finally tell him the truth, someone who would finally give him an opportunity. Or Jesus who was wandering around in the rural areas. They couldn't find it in the temple complex because that was the epicenter of empty religious activity and human tradition. How far do people have to go today to find truth, 
to find opportunity to be spoken to in their heart to encounter and experience God? Is the assumption that they can find it with a pastor in America? Is the assumption that they can walk into a church and find it? It has to be. We've got to be the place where hungry people find a meal. Where when they encounter this community, when they encounter our individual lives, their hunger is first identified and it's satisfied because they experience the genuineness, the authenticity of God working through us. This is a passage that just drills down into the real. It's a gut check. It's an authenticity check. It's one that we all need to receive. And I want to say that we're all the hungry individuals. We're all the needy individuals as we go before God in prayer, if we really are honest with ourselves, as we reflect on our own lives. So let's go before God in that posture, because God can work with that. If our mind is in it, he says, I'll work with that. So let's go before him in prayer. With that attitude, would you pray with me? We are those hungry. We are those needy. First of all, we're in need of your grace. The only way that we could stand before you, the only way this could be more than just lip service, the only way that we're going to do the work of your kingdom the only way that we're going to be a people who share the harvest with you is by your grace. Lord, I pray all of us would allow your Holy Spirit to drill down into our hearts, into where we really are, where we really stand, Lord, and that our hearts would be placed before you. Even in a posture of repentance, Lord, you receive humility. You can work with humility. Lord, we're asking to be a people that are challenged to give you more than just our lip service. We know that you don't receive that as service. If there's substance, Lord, make us, our individual lives, our, our community, you're a place of substance. Lord, where all the things that you revealed to us, we don't have a question about what that substance is. What's the fruit? What are you desiring? You spelled it out beginning to end. You've made it so clear, Lord. Have we valued it? Have we sought it? So, Lord, help us. Give us grace. The amount of times we've gone through motions and traditions and just mimicked others, it's been superficial. Maybe we've spoken words but haven't even been present in our body. Lord, will we apply our hearts and minds to you this morning? Do the work of your kingdom. Lord, it's your kingdom. We don't own anything. Not our own life, this world, not eternity, not the gospel, not anything, Jesus. And yet you've welcomed us in his tenant. You've even said you're going to share the harvest. Harvest with you. Not becoming possessive over our life, our time, our leisure, our objectives, our money. 
Lord, you're worthy of so much more than our leftovers as if we were paying you. The tenant, Lord, you're worthy of the harvest. Give us clear pictures of what that means in our own lives. Where are we just giving you the leftovers like you're working our life? Lord, would we work for your kingdom and give you it all?